Welcome to the Magic Pisces Podcast. Welcome back, Magic Pisces Podcast, Swimming in a Sea of Nuance. I think that's going to be the new tagline, Swimming in a Sea of Nuance. And I have been accused of being, I think fickle is the word, or fishy, or overly ethereal, or playing tit for tat, but all I'm really doing is dancing in nuance. And sometimes my fucking opinions change from one moment to the next about everything. It's just the way I roll. It's the nature of my existence. It's very Piscean. And there's a lot of magic in that. It's funny. I um, it's, not, it's actually not funny at all. I've been... <laughs> I've been reading the um, autobiography of Frederick Douglass, one of his autobiographies, called My Bondage, My Freedom, and it is just the gnarliest fucking shit ever, like ever. I was in Barnes & Noble the other day, I wandered into Barnes & Noble, I had no idea what I was going to buy, and I was just walking around with absolutely no idea as to you know, what type of a book I was going to pick up, and I ended up in some sort of history aisle or his, I ended up in a, in a history section, and there's that book staring right at me. It was like the last surfboard I bought. I walked in a surf shop, and it was staring right at me. And I was like, I'm your board now. And, um, and this book was like, I'm your book, and I can't put it down. And the first part of the book is written um, from the standpoint of him being a child and basically awakening to the fact that he is a slave. He's like, it's like slowly becoming more, more is like, it's as if it is slowly being revealed to him the nature or the, the it, it's as if the nature of the circumstances he faces in life are being slowly revealed to him. And he's coming to discover that he is part of this just sickeningly disgusting institution, the institution of Chattel slavery. And it kind of, one of the, the culminating moments is uh, of his childhood is uh, watching his cousin Esther be whipped um, as he's witnessing this through like a door, he's like in another room peering through like a crack in a door or something. And he, he sees her, uh, he sees her get whipped. And then he, he basically, uh, says that she was more or less whipped on a regular basis for the rest of her life and just lived this disgustingly, uh, just a really horrific, wretched existence. And, and basically, Esther, his cousin, was in love with Edward, who was also a slave. Edward was her husband. And Edward was a superior specimen to uh, who is referred to in the book as Old Master. And Old Master, and Esther was beautiful, and Edward was a superior specimen. And Edward made Old Master jealous. And so old master mutilated this beautiful, the, the beautiful body and soul of Esther, Frederick Douglass's cousin. 
and it's just it's just disgusting it's just disgusting you know and then it gets he 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 kind of speculates that I, I think what I allude, what I infer from this specific passage, this other passage, aside from the whipping, is that uh, the the slave owners, many of them essentially lived lives of inner turmoil as the result of the fact that they owned human beings. And so there's just this sort of peace in their soul that they cannot get because they know they're evil or committing evil. And they then take that out on their property because they don't know what to do with the unresolved feelings of guilt is sort of how I interpreted it. So it says here on page 75, Howsoever the slave owner, slave owner may allow himself to act toward his slave, and whatever cruelty he may deem it wise, for example's sake, or for the gratification of his humor, to inflict, he cannot, in the absence of all propagation, look with pleasure upon the bleeding wounds of a defenseless slave woman." When he drives her from his presence without redress or the hopes of or the hope of redress, he acts generally from motives of policy rather from a hardened nature or from innate brutality. Yet, let but his own temper be stirred, his own passions get loose, and the slave owner will go far beyond the overseer in cruelty. He will convince the slave that his wrath is far more terrible and boundless and vastly more to be dreaded than that of the underlying overseer. What may have been mechanically or heartlessly done by the overseer is now done with a will. The man who now wields the lash is irresponsible. He may, if he pleases, cripple or kill without fear of consequences, except in so far as it may concern profit or loss. To a man of violent temper, as my old master was, this was but a very slender and inefficient restraint. I have seen him in the tempest of passion, such as I have just described, a passion into which entered all the bitter ingredients of pride hatred, envy, jealousy, and the thirst for revenge. I mean, that is just some gnarly fucking punk rock. Brutal literature <laughs> to ingest. He wrote this in 1857, I believe. Um, you know, and of course there he's talking about if you're actually the owner of the slaves, you can do whatever you want with them because you're, they're your property. Um, and then he goes on to, as I mentioned before, like it just, it occurs as if it just results in this sort of unresolvable turmoil at the level of soul, right? So this has been my reading material, uh, as the last, as of the last few days, he talks about the whips that the overseers used, which were like three feet long. They were green, red, or blue, I believe. And uh, you could just whip them out really quickly and just fucking whip people. You know what I mean? You just give these fucking poor slaves a fucking whip whenever he felt like it, you know? And then occasionally he would uh, systematically torture them, you know? And so... You know, talk about racism. Talk about systematic racism. Like, it's the most systematic racism that you could argue possibly the world has ever seen was right here in the United States, you know, 300 years ago. Not that long ago. So um, it's really fascinating to ponder 
um, the state of our nation as it currently exists as it relates to its racist history. Now, I know that I can seem to take a particular side or I can seem to take a less than compassionate stance and I can uh, seem to be less than empathic, uh, particularly when people are, um, you know, committing crimes and, um, and in the commission of those crimes, that a word commission of those crimes, um, you know, they end up dead, which is fucking horrible. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm, I may seem like I'm some kind of right wing nut at times. I hope it doesn't seem that way. I'm really not. Um, if you don't think that reading the, I had to put this book down the other night because it was so agonizing to read. Um, it was painful to read. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't turn another page uh, after reading the depiction of this woman, Esther, having her beauty torn from her body by a jealous slave owner. Um, it's disgusting. So that hits me on the level of soul. And um, there's a part of me that thinks at some point I was perhaps enslaved in a past life. Um, I do have a particularly empathic sense to me. Um, it might not always seem so, um, but part of my fishiness, my Piscean nature, involves seeing all sides of all issues at all times, um, sometimes at the same time. Uh, two different sides of an issue at the same time, almost at the empathic level, almost at the feeling experiencer level. And it results often in me living with a lot of turmoil because I end up uh, by many to, uh, I end up feeling eternally misunderstood by a lot of different people. And uh, I'm very sensitive, so I can also sort of end up uh, with an experience of being gaslighted. Uh, for thinking, feeling, experiencing what I do. So, welcome to <laughs> the life of me. Anyway, so uh, on the on more on the more on this the subject of sort of race, which I, I wasn't going to go here today, but whatever. I was going to talk about um, the Alkaline Trio and how awesome of songs they write. Maybe I'll get to that towards the end of the episode. But um, my friend, my friend Linnell uh, was telling me about uh, Linnell Harris, who, uh, you know, uh, an African-American leader in Chicago who is in a lot of ways rising to prominence. Uh, he's got a, a company called Murder Mediocrity. He puts on a Murder Mediocrity Summit once a year. It's an amazing experience, predominantly African-American, but not in any way exclusively. Um, but he really is introducing African-Americans to coaching um, in, in this really profound and powerful way um, and he's introducing them to possibility in a way that um, no one else is doing in the way in in a way quite like he does um, and that's what I that's what I think we need as a society and as varying uh, different is and and as communities is a relationship to possibility um, there is so much possibility out there in the world and when you look at the really amazing leaders in the history of 
mankind, um, really what you see is that they had relationships to possibility. Gandhi had a relationship to possibility. We could live free of British rule. Martin Luther King had a relationship to, po to possibility. I have a dream. Um, and, and that's what I see Linnell really embodying is, the, is possibility for people, you know, particularly African-Americans. And that's uh, one of the reasons I respect him so much. But he was telling me a story about uh, he went camping in Indiana with a bunch of, I don't know, I want to say maybe a dozen of his friends and relatives and um, cousins and, and whatnot. And then I think there were two white people that went along. Maybe it was just one. But, uh, but they were buying firewood. And I think it was, I think it was South, Al Albion, Indiana, some, some place in Indiana, a little bit south. And uh, they were buying firewood from like a gas station, and uh, and you know these these people have money. They're not broke. You know what I mean? They have way more money than I do, probably. Uh, and uh, so they were buying a bunch of firewood, and they were moving the firewood from the like behind the gas station or wherever where it's stacked into like their cars or their trucks or whatever. And some guy saw them moving the firewood, saw these black guys moving the firewood and went and told on them to the gas station owner that these black people were stealing firewood and they, were, they weren't. And uh, I guess the owner of the gas station was wearing a MAGA hat, a uh, Make America Great Again hat, and uh, was mad at the guy for telling on my friend for stealing firewood. So, you know, it's kind of like when, you, when, you, when, when people say, there's no racism... Um, and I've actually, you know, alluded to that perhaps here and there, or maybe that the, the racism isn't as systemic as it's claimed to be. Um, but when when uh, when you hear like firsthand accounts of your black friends who get accused of stealing firewood in redneck regions of the country, you're like, yeah, there's fucking racism everywhere. There's racism everywhere, and it all stems from. Um, the account, like the, the slavery that I began the episode off from, it all goes back to that. It all goes back to you are less than human because we owe we, because we own you and you are less than human. So we will whip you. You are less than human. So we will torture you. You are less than human. So we will separate you from your families forever. And so when you look around, you, you see these tens of millions of people who are still kind of fucked because of that you know like you could just look to the to the cause and actually Linnell argues um, and I agree with him on this that it's actually not the he said that the state of African Americans as it currently exists is a symptom of the fact that they were robbed of their identities and Ice Cube has a, a, a line on the death certificate album which is one of the most amazing hip-hop albums ever made in the history of music. One of the greatest musical albums ever made, period. Um, but he's got this line, broke up the families forever until this day, black folks can't stick together. And it's odd, broke us down, made us pray to his God. Um, and uh, I remember hearing that line when I got into that. I got into that album when I was like 22, 23 years old. Somebody gave me, a, my roommate gave me a tape of it and I listened to that tape in my car pretty much until it wore out. It's such an amazing album. But I remember hearing that line and being like, huh, yeah, I could see that. You know, I could see that. And um there was a fury in me back then. 
I just had this furious side, which still makes appearances from time to time. But um, that album really resonated me- with me in how it illustrated the plight, the plight of the African-American. Now, if you'd asked me back then, is there systemic racism? I would have been like, fuck yeah. And there very well may be now. Um, there are certainly individual instances of racism all over the place, um, like the like the situation I just described with my friend. So, um, you know, and if those of you, if anyone takes issue with the notion that I presented that perhaps um, the, that, that perhaps that systemic racism may not exist, uh, if you take issue with that, uh, shoot me an email, transform at my shape, magic Pisces, and let me know uh, what's, what's your, what's your counter to that. Um, so anyway, um, good stuff, good stuff going on. I notice, uh, again, the more that you connect with another human being, um, the easier it is to not talk about divisive issues. I called up my friend Z-Man the other day, Zenovi Morgules, my boy, my friend from way back when. Uh, this was after a quick uh, a, a Facebook exchange in which he was talking about um, the he, he was commenting on a Facebook thread um, that surrounded the a video I posted of some of the the um, Antifa people saying that they didn't care that that redneck got killed in Portland. They were stoked that the Nazi was dead. And I just posted the video and I said, come to your own conclusion. And he's like, that guy was a fucking Nazi. There's Nazis in Portland. Apparently, there's a lot of white supremacists in Oregon. Um, and and he immediately, you know, he posted that like, yeah, this guy's a fucking dead Nazi. And then he sent me a message. He's like, Dave, I respect you. Just because we have differences doesn't mean I don't think you're awesome. And then I just called him up and we had this big, long talk. And we didn't talk about the we didn't even talk about the Facebook post or we didn't like talk about the issues at hand in America. We talked about how maybe I should go visit him in Oregon and he'll take me around to all these secluded places he knows out in the middle of like nowhere Oregon and I was like yeah that's cool and then we didn't even there wasn't even a oh by the way yeah there's rednecks in Portland I think we talked about rednecks or racists in Portland a little bit but it wasn't the subject of our conversation overall we just like connected and talked about uh, Andrew Marciniak rest in peace and how much we miss him and how awesome it is in Northern California or uh, Southern Oregon rather and then he told me about some of the some of the not so pleasant years of his life that resulted from, you know, being careless on Grateful Dead tour a long time ago. Maybe he'll come on and share about those experiences at some point. So point being, call up your friend and talk to him. If you've got, if you're having a Facebook argument with someone, give him a call, say hi, talk about the fucking weather. Find out what's going on in their life. Ask them about, you know, their dog or their kids or whatever. And you'll find that, you know, just sort of like how it used to be, people don't really talk about politics when they get together. Sometimes they do. But really, when groups of people get together, they just talk about, like, whatever. You know, sometimes politics come up, but typically you're just talking about whatever, you know, and... 
it's a shame that this social media thing does what it does to people because I posted a I posted a link yesterday to a podcast of this conservative person who I've referenced from time to time or I do reference from time to time or regularly and um who I very much do not agree with on a lot of things um and and I said that it made sense after I told myself I wouldn't post anything political, then I did it anyway, and then this guy chimes in, and now all of a sudden I've got a fucking argument, I don't want to fucking argue, but I feel like I need to, otherwise he'll think I'm spineless, and da 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 you know, and it's just like, what the fuck? Why? 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 Now, I get that there are some things happening in the country, in the world, in communities, all over the place that need to be addressed, but we don't need to address them in the way that we are addressing them. We can just call each other up and be friends. Call each other up and be friends, and that's how you perhaps uh, bring peace amongst the tribes. That's what's happening in America. We are descending into tribalism. We're becoming a very tribal country, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Anyway, um... Point being, although I may sound less than compassionate, I am deeply stirred by human suffering, deeply troubled with her human suffering, uh, deeply connected with human suffering. Sometimes my own journey of recovery in which I went through the system, in which I ended up in jail, in which I clawed myself back from the pits of hell, essentially, um, sometimes the fact that I went through that journey and uh, rose above my difficulties can lead me to uh, have some have a somewhat arrogant attitude towards those who don't or who um, don't even realize that they can, uh, which is why I think we need a, a true leaders to rise and show people that possibility exists, that no matter what kind of circumstances they are facing in their lives, possibility exists. Anything is fucking possible. I am all of the proof that you need. So thank you again for listening. As I said, I was really planning on talking about um, the Matt Skiba, S-K-I-B-A or S-K-E-E-B-A. I can't remember. Matt Skiba, the singer of the Alkaline Trio. He's actually in Blink-182 now, but I just listened to this podcast interview of him talking about the song Radio, which is just this fucking beautiful love song. Alkaline Trio writes some of the most beautiful love songs ever. And Matt Skiba is just this, like, he's really fu- he's a really funny dude. He's just kind of like this alcoholic doofus sort of, like, artist, you know, from Chicago. And uh, he writes just this magnificent lyrics. And the first line of the, of the song is shaken like a dog shit in razor blades. And um, and I apparently I never knew what the is one of my favorite songs. It's called Radio. It's so good. And um, check it out, Radio by Alkaline Trio. It's just got this beautiful, beautiful melodic riff that it starts out with that just sort of runs the entire song. And uh, I always wondered what that line meant. And apparently, it comes from the Vietnam War. Um, and it's a term used to describe shell shock, which is I'm shaking like a dog shit in razor blades. It's a Vietnam War term, which totally enlightened me. Um, and, uh, I was listening to that interview and I was going to just talk about music and art and all that, but I ended up, um, also this week, rather, I've been trying to consume, uh, consume 
art and consume things about art. And one of the other things I consumed art-wise um, was the Frederick Douglass book. On top of that, I consumed an album by a band called the Yum Yums, who are, I think they're from Europe somewhere. Um, just the most screaming, awesome pop punk ever. Some of the most amazing pop punk ever written. It's just, they're just fantastic executors of music. They have absolutely perfect musical sense. Um, and this song, this albums, their albums are just packed with these totally catchy, poppy, bubblegum sounding, almost like 50s music, just these beautiful pop anthems. But they are fantastic instrumentalists. They can play their instruments extraordinarily well. And you just get these screaming solos that just come through and just blow your mind. So I was going to talk about that kind of stuff, but instead I decided to talk about whipping, flogging, um, America's disgusting, racist history, and the fact that there are currently um, racist things happening all over the place, um, including friends of mine or a friend of mine getting accused of stealing wood in Redneckville, Indiana. So I don't live in a racist place, so I don't know. Like, there's no racist where I live. I didn't. I lived in Rogers Park uh, in Chicago, and that's like leftist haven. It's like leftist communist haven, along with every type of color of person and creed of person that could ever be. And so it was just this amazing, it's really a colorblind neighborhood, if there ever was such a one. I didn't ever, I didn't ever, um, I didn't ever even, you stop noticing color after a while. You just don't even think about it. Um, and that's how it was there. Here, where I live in Southern California, North County, San Diego, I, you see a black person like every few days maybe. And if you do, you're like, whoa, weird. You know, that's one of the things I miss about Chicago so much is seeing black people. I love black people. They're fucking awesome. They're just like some of my favorite people ever. They truly are like some of the most just soulful human beings ever. And I remember there was this guy... Um, this guy, Michael, his name was Michael, and I used to call him St. Michael, and he was this total, like, crackhead heroin addict, alcoholic dude who would, like, always hit me up for money in the neighborhood. And I would always, would, if I ever had money on me, I'd give it to him, like, a dollar or two, whatever. And I knew what he was going to do with it, and I didn't give a fuck. And I would be like, hey, dude, uh, you don't need to live this way. And I would kind of give him a little bit of a recovery pitch and be like, I used to be just like you. And he was a good soul. He was such a good soul. You could just tell. He was just like, hurting so badly i just want to bring him to a meeting so badly and just show him recovery but he wasn't ready but i certainly hope that the few words i exchanged with him over the years you know they 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 were worth something to his sad soul it was funny too because i was always like afraid he might pull out a knife or a gun on me too like i would i would always keep just a healthy distance from him like literally like a spatial distance because you just never know what like a, a junkie or a crackhead alcoholic might do once you've sort of gained their trust or they've gained yours once they've gained your trust a little bit. And, uh, but I would always talk to him and I, every time I see him, I go, St. Michael. And he never, he never remembered my name. He would always give me this, like, he would always give me some lame excuse for why he needed money. <laughs> and I would just be like, would you just tell me you're an alcoholic and I'll just buy you some liquor? It's fine. I don't care, you know, and, and, but he was just, he's just a, a destitute soul. He was just a lost and destitute soul, destitute soul, 
just like I used to be. This other person was me. There was a part of me that knew exactly what it was like to be that part of him. And we are all connected. We are all one. The other person is you. If you've got a resentment towards someone, it is very likely a projection of your own shit. Therefore, it's irking you because it has been unresolved. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I love you all. I'll talk to you next time on the Magic Pisces Podcast. Peace. 